Welcome to the Church's Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I have the honor to talk with Bishop Cedric Bridgeforth, who was recently elected bishop in the Western jurisdiction of the United Methodist Church and will be serving as my bishop in the greater Northwest area that includes a huge territory of the states of Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Welcome, uh, Bishop Cedric Bridgeforth, to the Church's Changing Podcast. All right. Thank you, Beth. Uh, thanks for having me on today. I'm just going to start out with, tell us a little bit about you, uh, your background, and then go into what compelled you to put your name forward as bishop in this changing time of, I guess, the world and where we are right now today. Oh, let's just start with an easy one. Uh, yeah, let's start with yeah. the easy one. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that one. Yeah, I was born and raised in rural North Alabama and grew up going to church. My mom's family was Baptist. My dad's family was Methodist. So we grew up going to both. So I share both both heritage are uh, are very you know dear to me and a part of my upbringing. Very close with my uh, maternal grandmother, who was a, a guiding light uh, in my life growing up and was the one who really insisted that we go to church and find something to do. In fact, when I was nine or 10 years old, it was my grandmother who said, boy, one day you're going to preach. And <laughs> I was not excited about that proclamation. So I went <laughs> screaming and running out of the church. I don't want to preach. I don't want to preach. But I did surrender to a call to the ministry around age 19 or 20 while I was serving in the United States Air Force, uh, after which I went off to college, got a BA in religion, and then uh, went off to seminary. Still wasn't planning to pastor anybody's church. My ministry was going to be in academia and administration. But in my third year of seminary, messed around and got a part-time student local pastorate appointment to serve a church and stayed there four years and had a wonderful time and moved through my ministry serving local churches serving at the seminary and also as a district superintendent. And uh, most recently, just prior to my election, was serving on conference staff as director of innovation and communication for the CalPAC conference. And in that role, I got to do some exciting things, which I imagine we'll talk about at some point Mm -hmm. today. Uh, But to the second part of your question about why I would be open to having my name go forward at this time, I've always been the person who said yes whenever the church has asked me to do something. And just the way I work in general, if I don't have a hard no, then it's yes. But I believe the church has invested a lot in me and has given me opportunities that no other space ever would have. And so, you know, my response was yes, as my colleagues and friends and folks I've served with uh, said we see uh, something in you and would be willing to follow you if you were elected to serve with you. And so that was enough for me to say yes to the possibility. You also have in your background a few more credentials that I'd like you to share because I think it's really heartening to know that you bring those as a bishop that makes who you are quite unique, I think, in your skill set. Well, I, you may be talking about my doctoral studies. Uh, I was in organizational leadership from Pepperdine, and I actually focused on growth strategies within the local church context as my dissertation. And I've also worked as a consultant uh, with nonprofits, uh, with nonprofit leaders and boards. 
And that's really given me some great insight that's been helpful in these past few years of moving uh, through COVID and everything that's been happening within our uh, social landscape to see how the rest of the world is seeing the world and uh, how it's doing fundraising, how it's doing direct engagement, how it's uh, tending to training and capacity building and moving beyond a performance-based evaluative structure. That's been Mm. very helpful to me in my work. So tell us a little bit about what you have been recently doing in your position as Director of Innovation and Communication in the CalPAC conference. Yeah, I, you know, I love the title. Trust me, I really <laughs> love the title. In, the, in, some ways, in some ways, I think it's misleading because, um, you know, it sounds like it's 50-50. Most of it's uh, been on the communication side, but even in that space, uh, just given where the church is and where it needs to be headed, a lot of innovation needs to take place, needed to take place, and continues to be a great need within our annual conference space, but then also in our local churches. So a lot of time and energy spent listening to local churches, learning what tools they are using, but also listening for the ones that they wish they had, and then finding ways to connect churches to resource persons who can come help them get online, stream a service, post a service to YouTube, what is a Facebook Live, you know, and oh, Instagram's a thing. So, you know, all of those types of conversations, but it really helped us see how far behind we were mm-hmm. within the local church context. The annual conference had its own issues, but within the local church context, this time of going into the digital space for all of our churches really just brought to bear how far behind we were, you know, with learning new technologies Online giving was a struggle for the majority of our churches, but when we figured out that's the only way giving can happen, suddenly it was okay, right? And, you know, we figured out that, you know, gathering together in one place at the same time on Sunday might not be the only way people receive the good news, right? So helping people see that that wasn't just good for our time of COVID protocols, but really the way of the future, I think has been the the what I've spent the most time uh, working on with churches, helping them settle into that reality and seeing that churches who really invested in technology, invested in getting their staff and bringing in volunteers who were open to new innovations in technology and willing to keep those growing and going even after they were able to return to their campuses has made all the difference in the world. And In terms of the innovation side, I realize that that technology, when you say that the church has been behind in that, that's an innovation in and of itself. Um, But I also know a little bit more about your background that you have been an innovative leader in the kind of places that you've served. And I'm just really curious about how all of that is going to inform your role as bishop Hmm. and what you see are the kind of the barriers that you've discovered throughout both in the local church and in the judicatory level and how your unique skill set, how you want to engage that to help bring about change. Mm. Yeah. And you'll have to unpack that for me a couple times as I, as I yeah. go into to responding to this, Beth. I, I love the question though. Because part of it goes back to, you know, part of, you know, why I always tell people I was born and raised in rural North Alabama, because I'm usually sharing that from some space other than that, 
right? Uh, the bulk of my ministry has been served out here in the Western jurisdiction in Southern California in a variety of ways. And I've had some national positions as well, but I've done my ministry outside of my uh, liturgical homeland, if you will. And I think I've been able to do that well because I begin with relationships. I begin by getting to know people, getting to know the context and letting people know who I am. And we can focus on the technology and, and all those innovative pieces all day long. But if we don't start with basic relationships, I don't know how people even begin to hear us. So I use that as a way of mm. building, building trust through connection so that you know people can see I've, I've interacted with a variety of people from a whole lot of perspectives and places and we have survived. And you too, even if we are in very different places theologically, politically, and otherwise, you know, we, we can have a relationship and live on the other side of it. So I find that very important, no matter what it is we're trying to accomplish, that we, we begin there. And so I've employed that really as a strategy, as a tool, as a foundational value and activity in every place I've served. I've just started there and and really invited people into a space of developing relationship and that helps to engender trust and and then from there you can talk about a preferred future you can talk about a vision you can talk about shared purpose and mutual benefit and people will go anywhere with you once they know you trust you and love you they will go there right and so I, I've, I've seen that happen in the local church context. I've seen it when I was on seminary staff. I've seen it as a superintendent, as conference staff. I've seen it in my consulting work out in the uh, nonprofit space. And so I'd be a fool not to bring that into this role as an Episcopal leader because uh, it's worked for me. So I want to continue to work in that way. Yeah, and that relational connection I see as key, especially in a post-Christendom culture mm-hmm. and in a decline of institution on all levels. Yeah. Um, where do you see the rub, though? You know, I'm in a local church right now, and that relational piece is so important. I also coach people that are starting new things and realize that relational piece is important. But it takes so much time, investment of time, to build the trust. And as we see this decline and the the building of relationship, where where do those where do those things meet for you? Where's the mm. rub for you? Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, time is a commodity that we don't control and that we can't mm-hmm. manipulate, but trust and relationship are totally within our control, right? They're totally within our control. Whether we're talking about, you know, from, from my standpoint, am I showing up as someone who is trustworthy? And am I showing up as someone who is trusting of the others in the space? I control that. And so I, I tend to shy away from things that I don't do extremely well. And so controlling time is not something I can do at all. So I don't even try to do that, right? But I find that, you know, people knowing that my highest value and investment is more in the person and less in the process is helpful, right? And I think if people know that we are committed to journeying with them, that there's less anxiety about 
the, the impact of time on what we're doing. And I think this period of pandemics, you know, pressing in on us, forced all of us to slow down, mm. forced many of us to just press pause and in some cases stop, right? And so we know we can do ministry. We know we can develop new relationships. We know we can do new things. We know we can engage uh, new technologies because we've done it in the midst of time slowing down, pausing or stopping around us. And so we don't have to have anxiety about the time. We control the anxiety that we allow in our space, right? And so if for me, if I'm going to be anxious about something, it's going to be about whether or not this relationship is moving in the direction we want it to move in, not about the time that's pressing in on it that I can't control. Oh, man, I love that, Cedric. If we really took that to heart, that listening deeply and developing relationship with others is the key to ministry in the 21st century. And what you just said about the movement, is this relationship moving in a way of greater love, greater acceptance, greater understanding, however that moves as the metric for ministry? That is a huge shift in approach, especially coming from um, uh, the hierarchy where our normal metrics have been butts and seats, funding, ministry program. So can you share with us a little bit more about how you see that unfolding as you lead a conference? Yeah, most, most definitely because, and, and part of this, I think, forces us to, to think this way, to function this way, lead this way, because the old metrics don't work right? We don't have a way to count people, right? We don't have a way to um, uh, figure out, you know, we had 63 views on our YouTube channel, you know, so what that they were only there for 30 seconds or those 63 views was, you know, 20 of them were my mom trying to hear, you know, the part (laughs) where I spoke, right? So, you know, so do we just add 63 to the 42 who were sitting in the sanctuary and the two babies who were in the nursery? How do we do this, right? So the way we count people goes out the window, thankfully. You know, the way our funding comes to us has to come from a variety of sources now. It's not just, you know, through the offering plate that's passed on Sunday mornings. It's the basket at the back door. It's the drop box at the front of the church. It's the, the app. It's Venmo. It's, it's all these things, right, that we're using. And it's also, I think, going to force us to do the work that we could have been doing. And thank God we are, have been evangelized enough now to really open our, our minds to it. It's really even looking to those other spaces where funding can come to us, where we take seriously our partnerships out in our communities. And, you know, the church becomes a space where it's not the lead on everything, but becomes a partner in many things, right? Mm -hmm. And those relationships are going to be important because that's where we'll know where we have kindred mission. That's where we'll know where we have, you know, like-minded focus. And I don't mean thinking the same, but I mean trying to accomplish the same things, right? And that's whether it's with our ecumenical partners, with our interfaith partners, 
with local nonprofits, with our school districts, or even with our civic leaders. Relationships are at the center of all of this. And we exist in a time now where we have this great digital footprint uh, that we're all making, and it's getting deeper and deeper as the days go on, but we're not really developing deep and lasting relationships in those spaces in the same ways that we did them when we were face to face. And so the types of questions that we ask are different. You know, the way we, we measure connection, I think, is different. And I believe the annual conference, the jurisdiction, the denomination, you know, can be some key spaces where we have these conversations to help districts and local churches, um, you know, engage in some different ways and understand, you know, how do we measure the impact of what it is we're doing? How do we measure the vitality of this mission or this ministry that that we've invested ourselves in? So I'm going to go real personal here and ask you, when you are out and about and having conversation with people, and it's particularly, you know, I think a lot of times as leaders in the church, we focus those conversations on people within the church and neglect to realize that in any place we go and any conversation we have can be sacred moment. Mm-hmm can be elevated as deep connection and is part of our ministry. So when you're out and about, what is the internal checking for, or you could call it metric, that you're that you're looking for to say, oh yeah, this was this was this was a beautiful conversation. This was Mm -hmm. a deep connection in that sense that you talked about that, is this relationship moving forward? So what in particular are you looking for in that? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of probably a little elementary, <laughs> but- A simple is good. Yeah, 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 I'm all about it. I am all, all born and raised in rural North Alabama, so I'll bring you back to simple whenever I can. But you know, it, it it's, do I want to do this again? Do I need to do this again? Right? And sometimes I need to do something that I don't want to do. But uh, those are two questions that guide me, you know, whether or not I, I, I want to engage or do I need to engage, right? And you have to keep evaluating because in the church, we don't do evaluation well if we do it at all. Correct. So those two evaluative questions I, I find helpful, both personally and professionally, Right. And it, it reminds me uh, as we talk about, you know, finding, you know, these sacred moments, moments when we're out and about. One of the churches I served was, you know, struggling. You know, it was naming, you know, we just the leaders were we just don't have that much going on. You know, we're not impacting anybody's lives. And I'm like, I don't think that's really true. Like, you know, so I crafted an experience with them to challenge that because I I knew this church. I mean, this was the church that pulled me back into ministry. So I Mm. knew the impact they were having out in the community because I saw them. I watched them through the years. I'd served as their district superintendent and was proud to share their stories long before I was appointed as their pastor. And But they had this sense of we're not doing enough. We're not doing anything, some of them would even say. And so... I, I got you know a bunch of the leaders together and I had them list all the community groups that they were a part of, the offices that they held, 
the nonprofits that they supported, uh, places where they volunteered and places, you know, that they supported and spoke highly of in some very active ways. And there were about 15 people in that room. And after we finished listing all those places and all those people, all those connections, you know, the conversation was then about when did you stop being a follower of Jesus Christ? Did you enter these spaces and cease to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Did you show up in these spaces and pretend to be someone other than who you were? And to a person, they're like, no, it's like, that's your ministry. That's Mm. where you are doing your ministry. And so from that point forward, we started listing all those places as ministry partners and places where we are in ministry as a congregation. And we spread that beyond just the leadership team and into the body of the congregation. And they began to see this web of activity Mm. that they were all engaged in around uh, greater Los Angeles. And, And suddenly they had a greater view of what ministry was and what the church was offering them. The church was was the one teaching and preparing them and supporting them, and they were literally being sent out into the highways and byways to share the love and grace of God in so many places. And so not only did it change how they viewed what the church was supporting, for some of them, it changed how they showed up in those spaces, because then they knew someone would ask them to give account of their ministry setting. And so their block club meeting, their sorority meeting, you know, uh, all these different places was their places of ministry. And that elevated what they were doing in those spaces and even challenged some of them to step into leadership, to increase their stewardship in some of those spaces as well. And so I think those types of conversations, that sort of guidance is really what's needed because it's not all happening at our local church address and it's not happening at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Ministry is happening everywhere at all times. The question is, can we see it? And our internal questioning is, do I need to do it again? (laughs) Like, do I want to do it? Do I need to do it? Well, and I would add to that question too, does this bring me joy? Mm. And am I bringing a sense of the gifts of the spirit to the conversation or mm-hmm. to the encounter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would would be some, some more of those questions for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, you know, and and speaking from a perspective of, you know, someone who though a part of the hierarchy and a part of the power structure still occupies some categories, you know, that aren't always, you know, on the upper upper end of the the power structure you know, there, there is the question of, you know, am I valued in this space, right? Am I bringing value and am I valued in this space? I think that's always in there as well. Mm, yes. Well, you just gave us another game changer. I'm certainly going to take this idea and bring it to my local church right now. But again, just those subtle shifts can bring such new life into places where it's like we don't know the gift of the gathered community. You know, it's like that Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And Mm -hmm, he doesn't mm -hmm. realize the gift he is until, you know, that angel comes and takes him out of the equation. Yeah. And I I think part of it, you know, you talk about that little shift, you know, I, I know in my earlier years in ministry, if someone talked to me about innovation, I only thought about a new thing. I now see innovation as a new way. 
as a new framing. It's not always a new thing. It's probably just a new way of seeing the old thing or a new approach to the thing that already exists, which makes it new, right? So I'm not banging my head against the wall trying to create the next great thing. Yeah, and it also opens up the the playful movement of the spirit because when we when we have a different perspective, then we're able to see differently and hear differently and maybe trust in that unfolding of of where that's going to take us because it mm-hmm. always takes us someplace. Yeah. yeah. Someplace new and fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so so what are you hopeful about in the United Methodist Church as you enter into this new role? Well, I am hopeful about a lot. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, to, to narrow it down to a few things, and it's really the things that I, I hope to give my time and attention to and uh, invite a whole lot of conversation, not necessarily programming, but a whole lot of conversation and exploration around what it means to be in ministry beyond the local church, what it means for the church to be in ministry beyond uh, the local church. I think also, you know, taking seriously what church can mean for, you know, the grouping, the generations that we label as digital natives. I think that's important uh, because I don't know how we continue to innovate to even stay not just relevant, but alive as a church without <laughs> them. Um, yeah. They're the ones who will. Uh, we need them at least to run our stuff, you know, to take us where we need to go. And I also think something that I've, I've really taken seriously over the probably the last decade or so is mutual mentoring is uh, has been very helpful to me. And that's you know, inviting people who are at different stages of life than the one I'm in, or even the ones that are beyond where I am, inviting them into an intentional mentoring relationship so that we are learning with and from one another. I think that can help us as we talk about a culture of call, as we talk about what ministry might look like in the future with fewer and fewer Mm full-time ordained elders, you know, uh, leading local churches I think that'll help us, you know, get a greater sense of what ministry really is and how to live out our callings in a variety of spaces simultaneously. I also, you know, find this data that's coming out now about our shrinking population within the United States uh, intriguing. I read an article recently about how colleges and universities are in trouble Over the next two decades or so, they'll start to see this because of the shrinking birth rate, because the population won't be there. And I I read that in a particular way because most of the churches that I I work with or engage with and even have pastored, you know, started out by talking about we need to get young families in here. Well, good luck because there are fewer Mm -hmm. and fewer of them. That that's one thing. And and I don't know, you know, about your friends, but all of my peers are just now starting to start their families or have children, and we're in our 50s, you know? So there's no young family uh, that, that, uh, that I can point to on my block. So I think those, those all have implications for the church, and, and I would want us to have some deeper conversations about that and see what sort of reality that can help us land in. But again, I think we can only have those conversations if we have uh, trusting, loving, faith-based relationships with one another. Mm -hmm. 
So we've talked about the hope and this leverage that I see if we're going to bring in that kind of language of the deepening of the relationship and allowing the relationship to drive the unfolding. What do you see are some obstacles that you're concerned about? Hmm. Something that, that, you know, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep. My spouse will tell you that. I do not lose a whole lot of sleep. But something that that uh, has me go to bed a little bit later uh, sometimes, you know, it's just the, the way our politics have overtaken our spirituality. Mm-hmm. That concerns me greatly, uh, that we cannot see a a political figure, we cannot read or examine a policy, uh, a judicial decision. We can't even look at a cereal box without making it some sort of political statement that agrees with me or is just totally opposed to who I am. And so this absence of of gray space, which to me is the place where we where we play, it's the place where we grow, it's the place where we listen and we learn. The absence of that gray space really concerns me. Now, I just frame that in a very secular sort of way, but it's, it's, it, it is alive and well within our denomination. It's alive and well within many of our local churches. And it's not just about those people sit on that side of the sanctuary and I sit on this side. It's these people can be here and those can't, you know. And, and then we see it trickle into the holiday gatherings, you know, to where, you know, families can't even gather safely, you know, in this very polarized time. And I, that concerns me, you know, that concerns me because it whittles away relationship. And if we whittle away relationship, then we shift into isolation. And once we get into isolation, we don't mind annihilating everyone who's not in my tribe or in my cave. And mm-hmm. that, that scares me. I agree with you. And actually that, that block, that stumbling block that is, you know, hyperpolarization writ large all over the world right now. I think that the gospel speaks into that so beautifully and it reinvigorates my reason for being a leader in the Mm, church. mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, talking about these mindsets of kind of an ethnocentric us versus them, my theology is better than your theology, my political party is better than your political party. What is it? What is that deep call of God to move beyond the either or? And what do we need to let go of spiritually in order for us to step into? a both and, uh, we're in this together kind of perspective. Mm, mm. Yeah, I appreciate that question. And, you know, I think it's, um, you know, something I, I that, that I was introduced to a few years ago, and it's, it's you've probably heard of it, the, uh, the five love languages, you know? Oh, I, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know anything about this, and it's probably why I just got married, right? I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. I didn't know anything about it. But... You know, this sense of, um, and the reason I bring that up is I, I think, you know, the, the words of Jesus, you know, to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's great. But regardless of where you sit on your political fence or fencing, you can quote that same text with the same amount of conviction and use it to say, but, you know, I'm doing this to you, or I'm saying this to you, or saying this about you 
because one God directs me to, and this is how I'm expressing my love for you, right? So, so I understand that. But where you know this this work that Gary Chapman and other folks have have done around this love language business, I think can help us, right? Because it's not about I don't want you to love me the way you want to love me. I need you to love me the way I need to be loved, right? Mm-hmm. Which requires you to get to know me right? It requires you to not center everything on you and your perspective, but it forces you, welcomes you to invite me into the equation and into the conversation in a way that you get to know how I receive love, right? Because it's going to help us connect. It's going to help us to communicate. And I think that sort of thinking, that sort of approach even within our um, spiritual context and even out in the world can really help us, right? Because then it's not just about what I want and the way that I'm going to impose. Can you hear that? The way I'm going to impose my love upon you through my laws, through my, my political persuasion, through, through and by my power, but I'm going to invite uh, us to share in love because this is how you receive it, and this is how I can best uh, give it or share it. Mm, I love that. It's a it's a more of a entering into a curiosity about the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's invitational, right? Mm-hmm. It's invitational, and where there is force, I find it hard to find love. Yes, I really do. I really do. I can find war. Um, I can find oppression. I can even find neglect when you're talking about force or imposition of love. But um, I think love is more invitational and welcoming at its core. And as we know, perfect love casts out fear. And I think at the bottom of all this is this generalized anxiety about all kinds of things, rapid change in our world, about global warming, you know, politics, whatever. And it's it's not out of love that we're engaging a lot of times. It's out of our own anxiety and, mm-hmm. and, and worry. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fear is not a good reason to do anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so my last question to you, Bishop, is what excites you about being a bishop in 2023? So the thing that excites me about uh, serving as a bishop in 2023 is I, I think, you know, it's a time where I can step into this and I can talk about hope. I can talk about change. I can really talk about uh, the opportunity that's before us. And, and I, I name it that way because much uh, many of the systems around us, many of the people we engage with are in deep despair. Whether we're in the grocery store, whether we're online, wherever we go, there's a lot of despair around. And I think the message that we get to bring right now is one of hope and opportunity to where people can really start to reframe, reshape, you know, recommit, rediscover who they are and who they want to be emerging, you know, on the other side of this, this time of isolation and pandemic that we've been in. And some people may look at me like, you're crazy. This is like really bad. It's like, well, is there a better time to preach hope? Is there a better time to invite people into deeper relationship than when they've been isolated and they feel as though they've been ostracized? And so I want to take full advantage of that opportunity. Uh, And I I want to invite as many people as possible to, you know, come along on on this uh, hope focused journey. 
Thank you so much, Cedric, for this interview today. And I often ask the people that I interview to end the conversation with a blessing. Mm. And in particular, I'm thinking about the blessing of folks who are being called into a new way of seeing, a new way of being, are realizing that maybe there is a place for them in ministry and in uh, in an innovative way. So would you leave us today with a blessing for the folks that are listening? Yes, yes. And and in fact, the, the, uh, the blessing, the benediction that I uh, started offering at uh, the last church I pastored, I think fits here. Okay. And it is, you know, as we go out into this new day, a day that none of us have ever seen before, a day that some of us thought we would never, ever see, I challenge you to look around, look around, look around and see all that God is doing. And while you're looking around, find a mirror and see the greatness that God created when God created you. And may you go forth into the world and do the great things that only you can do by the power of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Cedric. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the conversation. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.